0: the public accounting has begun. Congressional hearings about an assault on our democracy by a fraction of Americans who nonetheless still hold enormous political power over the rest of us. How do we get through this without feeling defeated? Can we find a light at the end of the tunnel in these House hearings? We're gonna reflect on these questions and take your calls with political scientist, Christina Greer, and then we're gonna clear our emotional palates a bit. Have you spent time with the work of artist Faith Ringel? She's in her 90s, still making art, and honestly, she's been reflecting on these questions since the 60s. I
1: mean, it was just like a, I don't know what, a vegetable soup of American violence. Brad Brown, what do you say? Uh, violence is American as cherry pie.
0: We'll learn about her work from her daughter. That's all coming up on United States of Anxiety.
2: The
3: January 6th hearings are starting tomorrow. What do you think is at stake?
4: Well, I think it was an attempted coup and there's been tremendous effort and resources used and this is our opportunity to hear directly.
0: Well, it's important, you know, to try to protect democracy, you know, if there was something illegally done.
1: Because it's the democracy on the line. Do I feel optimistic about the outcome? Mm,
2: Not really.
4: Will you be watching? I haven't
2: decided. Well, it's a particular busy weekend for me. I don't know about watching, but definitely I'll be reading about
0: it. I probably honestly will not be watching because I'll be doing other things at the time, to be honest. I know it's an important thing, but uh, I probably will not be anywhere near a TV set at that time. Welcome to the show. I'm Kai Wright. This weekend has got to be one of the most strange, dissonant moments in the lifespan of this country. The television event that began on Thursday night and continues tomorrow morning would by any previous standard be a watershed, one of those rare events where you've got the whole nation's attention and people are emotionally invested in the outcome. But in reality, I suspect a lot of people, myself included, if I am totally honest, are just numb about the whole thing. Let me start, though, with Representative Liz Cheney. She is, infamously to some, the Republican vice chair of the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. Here's how she kicked it off on Thursday night in prime time.
2: Tonight, I'm going to describe for you some of what our committee has learned and highlight initial findings you will see this month in our hearings. As you hear this, all Americans should keep in fact, in mind this fact. On the morning of January 6th, President Donald Trump's intention was to remain President of the United States, despite the lawful outcome of the 2020 election and in violation of his constitutional obligation to relinquish power. Over multiple months, Donald Trump oversaw and coordinated a sophisticated seven-part plan to overturn the presidential election and prevent the transfer of presidential power. In our hearings, you will see evidence of each element of this plan. In our second hearing, you will see that Donald Trump and his advisors knew that he had in fact lost the election. But despite this, President Trump engaged in a massive effort to spread false and fraudulent information. To convince huge portions of the US population that fraud had stolen the election from him. This was not true.
0: All of which is to say, January 6th was not something where passions ran high and stuff got out of control in the moment. It's not just about Donald Trump refusing to call off the dogs once the violence began. Rather, the committee concludes that the former president of the United States planned and executed a failed strategy to interrupt the transition of power because he knew he lost and they intend to prove it. And yet, like I said, I'm pretty numb about it all. On some level, it just feels futile and I hate that. I really hate that I feel this way. So for the first half of tonight's show, I've invited one of the smartest people about politics I know, who was also the person we had on the show the weekend after January 6th happened. Christina Greer is a political scientist at Fordham University and co-host of the FAQ podcast. Christina, welcome back to the show.
5: Thanks so much for having me, Kai. It's always great to be here.
0: We are hopefully going to talk about a few different things in politics, but I do want to start with these hearings and mostly with how we can process it. I feel like there's tons of reporting out there about what actually happened on Thursday night, so... I'm really more interested in what it means for those of us who are outside the hearing room. So can you, first off, just react to how I set this up? I mean, do you think these hearings are a big deal?
5: They absolutely are, because it's not about the past necessarily. It's about a reflection of the past to see where we're going in the future. We did not necessarily have a peaceful transition of power, something that, you know, we've had in every year of our existence as a a relatively young nation. I think we also, though, have to recognize that for some people who aren't tuning in, it's to protect them from the trauma that they witnessed on January 6th and Mm. the real threat that they understand that this country still experiencing. Um, These people have not gone away. I mean, the DOJ and various courts are slowly but surely prosecuting them, but we know that they are just a small fraction of Americans who believe that this is something that should have been done, that should have been done even more aggressively, uh, and they're they're planning to do even more in the future. And so these hearings are not just a reflection of that moment uh, on multiple levels of of the government, uh, but it is a real I would say uh, a foreshadowing as to whether or not this this young democracy will survive. We are on the precipice of failure and we have to recognize that and I think far too many Americans don't understand just how fragile this democracy is. It only exists if we believe in certain principles uh, and we're seeing more and more Americans not wanting to uphold that. And to have a former president to say it's okay for you to do this, I actually encourage you to do this. I want you to do this on my behalf. That is so frightening. This is so different from Watergate. I know there are a lot of comparisons to you know. Should we yeah. tune in like Watergate? Richard Nixon, don't forget, was never impeached. He actually had enough respect for this nation to step aside. Uh, you know, and he's a highly problematic president. Let's not you know. <laughs> but he did traffic resign. In, hey, Geographic, but he was highly problematic. But he did resign. You know, we saw even in 2000 with, with Bush v. Gore. Al Gore knew that, you know, that that election had so many issues and problems. But for respect of the future of our democracy, he stepped aside. Donald Trump is the first American president who refused to attend an inauguration. He's the first American president during his inauguration, sat there and talked about the opposing party and his opponents in the most egregious, disrespectful, vile ways, setting the tone for the next four years. And so the fact that so many individuals don't see Donald Trump and his followers and his party as an existential threat to the future of our democracy is is beyond concerning and frightening, not just as a political scientist, not just as a Black American, not just as an American, but someone who knows that this democracy is incredibly fragile. We are slowly but surely making strides toward progress, but this is a president and his party. He's aided and abetted by his party. We cannot forget that. And they are systematically rolling things back uh, day by day and, probably- and did through four years. I, I want to go back to
0: where you started there. It's that, that those of us, I'm going to say us, that are having trouble tuning into this are reacting to a, a kind of trauma around what, what we know how grave it was. And part of it for me is it does feel futile. Like, it just feels futile at this point. Um, so I guess how... How do any of us watch this and not leave feeling that futility, not feeling uh, utterly hopeless about the future of democracy, given all that you just said?
5: Well, I mean, you know, I'm I'm a pragmatic optimist, but that's largely because I have the privilege of working with students at the collegiate level. And so I think teachers, you know, inherently, we have a certain level of optimism, even though our jobs are incredibly difficult, but we have a certain level of optimism that that others just don't have, because we see these young minds, we we hear their questions, we tussle through uh, what they're going through on a daily basis. But yeah, Kai, I wish I had a concrete answer for that. I mean, mm. to know that, you know, and we see this on social media and it's it's half joking, but it's actually not. We know that if there were hundreds of Black people storming the Capitol, we would see hundreds of dead Black people within minutes. We know that if it were Latinos or Asians or Muslims, we'd know that we would have a very different outcome than what we've seen now. We'd literally have an entire party saying, it was a slight dust-up. You Democrats are making, you know, a tempest in a teapot. It wasn't that bad. I mean, they were just sort of, you know, concerned citizens. Uh, or, and now, with the Rudy Giuliani talking points, it was actually Democrats who did it, right? I mean, so now they're just totally changing the discourse. Right. And so to see, when you watch those pictures, I mean, uh, my blood pressure is through the roof. You know, I have to I have to watch this in small doses because to see these men with Confederate flags, with spasticas. You know, with Donald Trump flags, breaking windows, crawling through crevices, pushing back police. These are the Blue Lives Matter people, by the by, right? Assaulting police officers, Capitol police officers, literally storming a Capitol in an insurrection at the behest of the sitting president of the United States, right? So much so that his own vice president is in hiding, from the president. This is this is the type of stuff that we talk about with, quote unquote, other nations, right, who aren't democracies. When we start looking at other continents and pointing the finger and saying, ooh, you know, they really need issues. You know, they, they need help with their democracy. They need help with their elections. We need help with our elections. Where is the U.N.? It's far time. The U.N. should have been in our electoral space years ago. I would say in 2000, they should have come in and, and stayed here, actually. Right. And so we have. I mean,
0: that was the discourse of the civil rights movement, right? Was like, this is a, this is a global democracy problem and there should be an international monitoring body over American democracy.
5: Yet and still, Kai, and you were absolutely right. But we have somehow played this hat trick on the world to say, never mind all of the facts. Never mind 400 years of chattel slavery, never mind genocide, never mind how we've treated women in every single group that's not a certain white men of a certain class. And we've sort of tricked poor white men into thinking that they're part of that group, even though we clearly know they're not. But on an international level, we act like we're basically, you know, a, a Four Seasons or a Ritz Carlton, and we're borderline a hojo or a motel six like we know that we have not (laughs) lived up to our democratic principles small d democratic principles by any stretch of the imagination we're not even close we're getting there that's why i'm invested in this democracy Mm. that's why i'm invested in this country that's why i'm trying to plant these seeds in the future minds of america but we're not even close and so to have something like this that is so evident that the former president of the united states is literally sowing the seeds of this insurrection. And for a glimmer, for a small moment, we had people in his own party who were saying, this is a bridge too far. We have actually, this this cannot be sustainable. And then a few days later, they're all in lockstep. This is a much larger, not just domestic problem, it's an international problem. And the root cause is so old, and it's so part of who we are as a nation built on, white supremacy, Mm -hmm. anti-Black racism, capitalism, and patriarchy, all on display January 6th, just as Bill Hooks has always told us. And so this is where we are right now as we're trying to process this collective trauma and move forward. These hearings are about where we are going as a nation, as much as they are as what happened on January 6th, 2021.
0: We need to take a break. I'm talking with Christina Greer, political scientist at Fordham University and friend of the show. And when we come back, we're going to open the phones. I've been asking Christina how these House hearings on January 6th will matter to people. So I want to hear what does matter to you in politics right now. Maybe it is these hearings. Maybe it's the health of democracy or maybe it's something else. What matters to you in this election year and why? We'll take a break and we'll take your calls after. Hey everyone, this is Kusha, I'm a producer. I've got two pieces of exciting news for you, and they're both about our next live episode this Sunday. First, we're doing a live Juneteenth celebration in partnership with radio stations around Texas. We'll take you to the party happening in Emancipation Park, talk about the history and food of the holiday, and of course, take your calls. And before the show, we also want your voice memos. How do you celebrate Juneteenth? What's your favorite part? Record yourself on your phone and email us the recording. The address is Anxiety at wnyc.org. The second piece of news is that we're also going to live stream the episode on YouTube. You can see Kai, our guests and chat with the whole team during the show. If you want to join, go to WNYC's YouTube channel at 6.05 p.m. Eastern time this Sunday. All right, exciting things. Looking forward to celebrating with you. Now back to the show.
1: I'm Benny Thompson,
4: chairman of the January 6, 2021 committee. I was born, raised, and still live in Bolton, Mississippi,
1: a town with a population of 521, which is midway between Jackson and Vicksburg, Mississippi, and the Mississippi River. I'm from a part of the country where people justify the actions of slavery, Klu Klux Klan, and lynching. I'm reminded of that dark history as I hear voices today try and justify the actions of the insurrectionists on January 6th,
4: 2021.
0: Welcome back. I'm Kai Wright, and that was Representative Benny Thompson's opening remarks on Thursday night at the House hearings on the January 6th insurrection. I'm joined by Fordham University political scientist, Christina Greer. And Christina, I want to hear your thoughts on on what Benny Thompson is saying there, because you know, it's been established that the key players in the actual violence on January 6th were part of this melange of groups that are either explicitly white nationalists or adjacent to it in some way. But Thompson's saying the way people have dismissed this violence, right, is also reminiscent of past white nationalist movements. Why is that important? an important point to make, or is it?
5: It's absolutely an important point to make, Kai. I've said this time and time again. I don't think the vast majority of white Americans understand the capacity of white Americans in this country. I don't think that they understand the depths to which certain white people will go to make sure that this country is quote-unquote theirs. I think a lot of folks are just like, well, I'm good, And, you know, there's certain key members of my family who are good. There are others who vote for Donald Trump, but, you know, that's for economic reasons. I don't think that they fundamentally connect the dots to see that this insidious behavior goes beyond a tax break. If you are supporting a man and a party and an ideology that says that Mexicans are rapists and that children should be separated from their families at the border and that Black people are inherently criminals and that Jewish people are inherently corrupt. And the list goes on and on about these tropes. January 6th makes total sense for that type of ideology. And I think that so many white Americans in this country don't fully understand the depths to which certain Americans have have gone and will continue to go to make sure that there's, there's not equity, there's not incorporation, there's not unity, there's no forward motion in this nation. And I think that is what is really frightening because it can't just be the marginalized groups trying to hold off the tide. It has to be a collective effort. When we've moved forward as a country, it has been a collective effort. We saw how folks work together in the civil rights movement. And keep in mind, the civil rights movement was like well over 50 years, right? This isn't just like something that happened a few right. years in the 60s, right. which a lot of folks think because we refuse to teach our history in schools <laughs> and refuse to have an honest conversation about who we are and who we were as a nation. But I, I, I really do think that The more conversations I have with white Americans who are just like, well, you know, I was good. I voted for Hillary, but I didn't bother talking to anyone in my family about how they voted because, you know, that's personal. It's like it's actually not personal when we view these policies and think of ourselves as a collective. And when we look at January 6th, you can't look at those as like the others because they're not going to listen to people like you and me they might actually listen to people who look like themselves and have a long walkthrough. Because we've seen people who have been able to convert Mm -hmm. to some sort of normalcy to recognize that they were under some quasi-cult. But the cult is real and the cult is strong and the cult has always existed since the beginning of this nation. And so until I think a majority of this country understands the threat, we're not gonna really, it's basically scooping water out of the ocean with a paper cup like it's not going to move us forward quickly the way we need it to
0: listeners i want to hear from you too christina and i have been talking about if and why and how these january 6 hearings will matter to people outside of congress so i wonder in general what matters to you in politics right now it could be january 6 it could be our democracy in general it could be something else what do you care about in this election year and why and let's start with Ram in Bridgewater, New Jersey. Ram, welcome to the show. Thank you.
6: Uh, I've been listening to your conversation. and very interested. So I have a couple of things. One of the things is I, I think that the Democrats are, it's very frustrating to me that they're really bad at messaging. They don't know how to concisely convey the information, right? They, they just seem to ramble on and give speeches in this day and age when, you know, what you need is a tweet or some you know some really condensed version of what mm-hmm. what the message is and why we should care right so that's my it, first thing then okay. the second thing sorry if i can finish yep, um, yep. the the second thing is i feel that the democrats are with the american people on most things except immigration so and the reason why i say that is if if they and just this is hypothetical. If they moved a little bit to the right on immigration, but they kept everything else, I think that they would win hands down, because now everybody is afraid. The problem is even the
0: immigrants themselves don't really many, many times don't they don't support more immigration. So thank you for that, Ram. Uh, so l- l- I'm going to let you go, and we're going to go to Reggie in bed sty.
4: Hi, um, I am black. Um, I am a registered Democrat. I voted nationally for Democrats every year except 2000. In 2000 I voted for Ralph Nader in New York in New York City actually. And um I I look at the hearings online on archive. I don't watch it live, but for myself uh the main issues right now are not this at all, frankly. The main issues: a is the foreign policy of, of Joe Biden is absolutely atrocious. When I voted for him, I didn't vote for a bunch of neocons uh, like Victoria Newland and the and um the people that he has in there, Jake Sullivan and Blinken, who are neocons. Two, the economic issues with um. The inflation and all that, he is he's failing on, the, on okay. the domestic issues. He's not an aggressive president on the domestic issues, but he's willing to whip a sanction on, you know, on, on anyone that I, defies I, him.
0: I got it, Reggie. I'm going to stop you just for time so we can get to one more caller. Uh, let's go to Bob in central New Jersey. Bob, welcome to the show.
7: Hi, I couldn't disagree with Reggie more. Uh, this is the only issue. Professor, you're doing an excellent job in raising our consciousness about this. It seems that we're at real risk, and it happens just at the time when African-American blacks are getting into positions of real power. Just, isn't that an amazing coincidence how that happens? I, I think that uh, we have to press this considerably. Economic issues, they're not under the control of, uh, of us as much as we would like. There are trends and, but this is a, uh, a, an issue that people are, uh, people are running, not, not wow. a blind economy.
0: Thank you for that, Bob. So Christina, there is a bunch there. Um, I want to try to pull some of it out. So one, um, the, just in general, the over, And we talked about this on previous shows in the last couple of months, the, the in general sort of frustration with the Democratic Party on a whole bunch of scores for people who look at these hearings, look at the Republican Party and say, this is a true threat to the well-being of the country. But the Democrats, for a variety of reasons, they have bad messaging. They don't have their politics quite right. They don't know, are just not happy. <laughs> um So... It, I mean, do you, as uh, an analyst, have you seen that as well? Um, And just what do you think that means for, as we go into these midterm elections, where people are going to show up and make choices?
5: Right. Well, and we know that usually during midterm elections, the party of the president tends to lose seats. And if that's the case, and we know that Democrats have unified government right now, which means they control the presidency, the House, and the Senate— if trends go the way they have in the past, you know, sort of few election cycles, that means the Republicans will take over one party or, or one branch, uh, whether it's at the House or the Senate. That's a very real uh, possibility. I think part of the frustration with so many Democrats is Republicans seem as though they play for keeps. Right. When they get power, they grab it. They are on the offensive and they it's, it's like a Brewster's million or supermarket sweep, whatever you want, <laughs> whatever visual you want to use. They do not sit around and say, like, let's build consensus. You know, we've got two years, but like, let's maybe try and figure it out. Whereas Democrats, you know, they bring emails to a knife fight or they bring a knife to a gunfight and Republicans don't play by the same rules. So if Republicans are losing, it's like, you know what, let's just change the narrative. Doesn't matter if we have to lie. Let's just do it. Let's, we are here to win, and I think Democrats are playing by a set of rules that no longer exist. Now, a lot of people like the fact that there's a level of decorum and patience and incrementalism, but the sense of urgency that we find ourselves in is very frustrating to people who are, who are asking themselves, I vote for this particular party consistently, and what am I getting? I'm getting incrementalism, maybe, maybe. I'm getting a party that doesn't seem as though they've got fight in them. I'm getting a party that keeps extending an olive branch and getting it singed off, yet and still they keep coming back day in, day out. It's a Sisyphean task. Are there working. any races
0: where you're seeing that change in terms of, um, you know, I'm thinking about some of the really important races that are going to ha- happen this year. There's the it, all over Georgia, the governor's race, <laughs> the senators, uh, Senator Raphael Roanoke's re-election. Re- Some of the state, many of the state level races. Are you seeing anything in the party where you're like, oh, that's that's changing?
5: Well, here's the thing: the Democrats are putting up phenomenal candidates. I mean, let's just let's stick with Georgia, right? They're putting up Stacey Abrams. They're putting up Reverend Senator Raphael Warnock, two of the brightest minds that we've seen in politics in a very long time. The difference is. On their watch, and dare I say on our watch too, because, you know, my grandparents fought in the civil rights movement. They weren't allowed to vote for the vast majority of their lives. But on our watch, the rollbacks to voting have been such that the institutional mechanisms that will prevent Democrats from actually participating at the polls in ways that they could and should, that table's already been set. So Democrats can give you a great candidate, but they're working against institutional barriers that Republicans have put forth. And so then you have Democratic voters who are saying, well, why, how, how and why did you all let that happen? How is it that it seems as though Republicans stay winning even when they're not in power? How is it that we have the president who controls, you know, the, the Democratic Party and a, a quote unquote Democratic Congress even by a slim margin however we have unified government but you can't even keep your people in order mansion cinema right to get them to vote when they should and so that is i think a collective frustration of democrats to say well what is the point of having power when republicans even in the minority still seem as though they're running the show and we and we know how they behave when they're in the majority so
0: a heart pivot here for a second because we're get, we got to wrap up this conversation about January 6 and in our next segment in this show we're going to cleanse our emotional palettes and talk about a remarkable artist Faith Ringgold oh, who is yes, famous please. for her painted quilts uh, and in listeners hang on you're going to learn tons and tons about her career and work Uh, And why she's important to think about right now. But Christina, you texted me earlier uh, with an adorable photo of you and your mom, I believe at the Faith Ringgold exhibit quickly wrap us up by with a little teaser here for folks about what's your relationship to this
5: artist and her work. Well, I've always loved Faith Ringgold and her quilts um, just because as an African-American female artist, she's part of the Black masters in my my mind. So, you know, when I think of Jacob Lawrence and William Johnson, Horace Pippin and Romay Bearden, Faith Ringgold is right up there with them. You know, Aaron Douglas. Uh, When I went to see the quilts and I'm a quilter. Uh, my mother's a quilter. I have a massive quilt for my grandmother from the 1930s. And my this is my mother's mother, so a very working class quilt. This wasn't the sort of fancy, you know, Amish style, three-pointed flower type quilt. These are sort of functional quilts. But when I was a fellow at Smith College, I got into quilting with the few Black women who were on campus, not just faculty, but also faculty, staff, and fellows. We all sort of, every Tuesday, we called it, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this on air, but it was stitching and bitching, right? It was was <laughs> women who could come together and we could talk about politics, we could talk about relationships, we could talk about family, we could talk about anything. Uh, and the fact that Faith Ringgold is a, in her 90s and still uh, such an important voice in Black politics, American politics, uh, and art is it, just beyond inspiring. And, and hopefully when, when the It travels again. Hopefully folks around the country can see it.
0: So that's a perfect cue up. Thank you. Listeners. Stay tuned. Christina Greer is a political scientist at Fordham University and co-host of the FAQ podcast. Great having you back, Christina. Thanks so much, Kai. Coming up, the life and work of Faith Ringgold. Stay with us. I went recently with our producer, Rahima Nasa, to the new museum on the Lower East Side of Manhattan.
3: So, I brought you
0: here because… We went to catch the end of an incredible exhibition, a 50-year retrospective on the artist Faith Ringgold. Rahima wanted to show me the medium that Ringgold literally invented. They're called story quilts. Why don't you take a look
3: at the text, It's really tiny, so it really, like, forces you to stand in front of the painting, which I also love.
0: So what does it tell us? What are we writing here?
3: So the text is a letter that Willa Marie, who's the protagonist of the painting, is writing.
0: They're these big, colorful, quilted paintings that carry complicated, actual written narratives about race and gender and really family a part of an exhibit called Faith Ringgold American People. It just closed here in New York, but it's headed to San Francisco next. And the name is apt because as I walked through this retrospective, I read in her art a history of American people in the 20th century, and specifically a history of Black American people and our conversation about where and how and whether we fit into this country. Faith documents this history through sculptures and paintings, but most famously through her story quilts. And it is a deeply personal history. In fact, an interview at the Museum of Modern Art back in 2016, Faith explained that the whole reason she started actually writing on her quilts was that she couldn't get her autobiography published. Publishers just didn't like how she was writing her story. And here's what she said about that. You don't decide, look at me,
1: and then decide what my story is. I tell you what my story is. That's my job.
0: Indeed. The story quilt our producer, Rahima, wanted to show me is called Dancing at the Louvre.
3: So it's this, like, large quilt, and in the center of it is a scene that's painted on. Um, There's borders around the quilts that are made up of different pieces of floral. That
0: the quilt depicts two Black women and three little Black girls who have their arms stretched out like they are dancing around. They're wearing these colorful dresses and they just look so, so happy. And behind them is a row of three famous paintings of white women, including the Mona Lisa. And like much of Faith Ringgold's work, the whole scene is just kind of meta. It's a semi-autobiographical artistic comment on art itself. And Rahima wanted me to see it and share it with all of you because she spoke about it with Faith Ringgold's daughter, Michelle Wallace. Now, Michelle is herself a very big deal. She's an art historian and a feminist scholar. She wrote a really important book about sexism within the Black nationalist movement. It's called Black Macho and the Myth of the Superwoman. But when Michelle and Rahima spoke, they talked about Michelle's mom, about the life and the work of Faith Ringgold, starting with this scene of a joyful Black family dancing at the Louvre.
1: I just think it's this incredible meditation on motherhood. It compresses many things in our lives because number one, mother took
3: my sister and I and my grandmother to Paris. Here's a story behind the quilt. As Michelle tells it, it's 1961, Michelle is 10, and her sister Barbara is 9. And Faith drags all of them to Paris, her own mother included, because she's trying to find herself as an artist, and she wants an up-close look at what her teachers say is the world's most important art.
1: My mother has finished her master's degree, and she's taken us all on her world tour of European art. My mother was Determined that we were going to see the Mona Lisa. And we were determined that we were going to get outside and get some ice cream. And um, so it was kind of a struggle. Okay, so in other words, this dancing at the Louvre is a derivation of our first situation uh in the Louvre, but it's also about the opportunities. How, how could you make a life for a black woman? that would end in her being a famous artist.
3: And what I went there for was... Here's Faith in 2016 again. Because I was trying to figure
1: out, do you really want to be an artist? I mean, are you really going to do this
3: struggle? I mean, you you want that really, or what do you want? Faith decides, yes, she does want to be an artist. But if she's going to struggle, she's going to do it on her own terms. And that means truly engaging with the world she inhabits as a Black woman.
1: My mother is, you know, a little bit like Jesus Christ in this sense, that she is willing to address and speak to whomever will listen. She was born in 1930 at 222 West 146th Street between Bradhurst and 8th Avenue. My mother grew up around wonderful storytellers.
3: This is during the Harlem Renaissance. You know, Duke Ellington, Langston Hughes, Zora Neale Hurston. So Faith grows up in a community of musicians, painters, and poets. And this creative spirit spilled into her home too, where Faith's mother was a towering figure. Whose name was Willie Posey, and who I called Mama Jones. Willie Posey? Loved to design clothes, and she had an incredible fashion sense. In one old photo, Willie is seen wearing this gorgeous A-line dress with white gloves, a beaded necklace, and strappy black heels. She has her hands on her hips and a big grin on her face. She was
1: really a housewife. She was designing her children's clothing and dressing them up. And so all the early photographs are them... You know, dressed head t- to toe in my grandmother's fashions.
3: And Faith's father, Andrew Lewis-Jones, he was a truck driver for the Department of Sanitation.
1: All those city jobs were great. So there was a kind of a bourgeoisie who worked for the sanitation department, post office, all those kind of jobs. Uh, black men had, those Black men who had those jobs were able to take care of their families during the Depression. And I think that people think of the Harlem Renaissance and the, and the Depression as mutually exclusive. Like one followed the other. But actually they occurred at the same time. You know, you got Jacob Lawrence, our great, one of our great artists, who is part of the Harlem in which my mother grew up.
3: Faith actually knows some of these people, like Sonny Rollins, who goes on to be one of the most influential jazz musicians of the 20th century. He was her childhood friend. But Faith experienced this era a little differently because she spent a lot of time at home. She was diagnosed at a young age with pretty bad asthma.
1: She was homeschooled by my grandmother, which is partly accounting for their tremendous closeness. The doctors just simply felt that uh, the best way to keep her from being sick was to not expose her to other children. And my
3: grandmother taught her how to sew and how to make dolls. And this became a way to encourage Faith to be creative. Willie Posey gave her paint and crayons to keep her occupied. Her dad bought Faith her first easel. When she's a teenager, she decides she's going to be an artist. And at the time, one of the few ways for a young woman to pursue art is to become an art teacher. So in 1948, she enrolls at City College and majors in art education. She sets about making a life. She gets married, has two daughters, gets divorced, graduates, teaches art in public schools, raises two little girls by herself, and all the while, she's still trying to make her own art. Now, through all this time, she doesn't have a studio.
1: Her studio, in fact, was a closet in our apartment. She painted boats and uh, landscapes I remember her making a lot of portraits of herself with pastels. When she really took off is when she married Bernadette Ringgold. And you know exactly when this happens. This happens in 1962. Then she becomes Faith Ringgold. And that is when she begins to, to find herself. The
3: Something else is happening that year.
1: 200,000 people converge on the nation's capital to rally for civil rights.
4: They come by train. They come by bus and by air.
1: And you had the the civil rights movement. You had Martin Luther King. You had nonviolent resistance. You had, especially in the North, a hope that there would be a peaceful resolution to integration. But there wasn't going to be. It was going to be violent. There are riots going on. Martin Luther King will be killed in 1968. John F. Kennedy in '63. Very important. Malcolm X killed in 1965. Very important in Harlem. A major uh, influence on my mother and my father in the Ringo household. They knew him. So, I mean, it was just like a, I don't know what, a vegetable soup of American violence. Rap Brown, what do you say? Uh, Violence is American as cherry pie.
3: In the summer of 1967, a series of uprisings protesting racial injustice and police brutality spread across the country.
7: New Jersey's largest city, Newark, for five
1: consecutive days and nights, at least 24 persons are killed. More than 18 And
3: during that summer, Faith makes one of her most famous works, which was her way of documenting this moment. Kai and I spent a long time in front of it when we went to the new museum.
0: Wow, so like this is very different from what we saw um, in the quilts, right? I mean, this is, there's a lot of blood <laughs> in this piece and, and death, and, like it's not people dancing in a museum.
3: She was basically depicting like what is happening in the news or what feels like is happening.
0: And it's funny to think about like where she must have been as the person, as the creator of this versus the creator of, you know, three three girls and their mom dancing in a museum on a quilt.
3: Yeah, no, definitely. Like, this one is definitely, like, the most graphic and violent. Um, and it's Faith actually- named this painting Die. It's massive, spans 12 feet. There's 10 adults, evenly divided between black and white. There are kids cowering as the adults fight. Their clothes are splattered with blood it looks like they're trying to kill each other or run away.
1: What's funny is when Mother did those paintings, I thought they were about the South. I didn't know that they were about the North. I mean, I believe what everybody else thought. You know, that racism and stuff was down South somewhere. (laughs) So she must be painting about the South.
3: But Faith knew racism was very real up North. In fact, she was facing it in the mainstream art world because she could not get attention for her work in the galleries and museums. They were closed off to women, especially Black women, and to this kind of politics. So Faith begins to organize and speak out.
1: Well, she definitely went to protesting because she couldn't get in anything. And she wasn't going to just sit home with the art piling up and take it. In
3: 1970, Faith and a group of other artists protested the Whitney's annual exhibition, which later became the Biennial. This show is a big deal for American artists, but the majority of the artists exhibited at the time were white or men. And Faith wasn't having it. Here she is talking about it in an interview for the documentary series Makers.
1: Our demand was that the Whitney biennial should be 50% women.
3: As Faith tells it, Michelle helped her come up with that number. While Faith did her best to shield her daughters from racism, she also taught them to be activists.
1: So she's a kid and she's doing her homework. And I said to Michelle, I said, what percentage of women do we demand? And then I said, 50%. Why? Because in the population of the world, women are 50%. In fact, they're more than 50%. And I said, oh my God, this poor kid, (laughs) she's too young to be involved in all this. Now, this was outrageous because, I mean, their thing was no women. You can't demand 50%. And I said, really? I said, what? What? Say it again. Why wouldn't it be 50%? I mean, I can understand why it might be a little bit concerning, but You know, let's face it. If we're going to demand something, it's 50 percent. I didn't realize how shocked she was by it and how shocked everybody was by it.
3: And they didn't get 50 percent in the end, but they did get 20 percent, which was way more than what anyone expected. In 1981, Faith's mother, Willie Posey, dies at the age of 78. Her death hits the whole family hard. Faith is buried in grief. And she channels that grief into making something unlike anything she had done before. She's always starting over again.
1: You know, these this restarting, this generational restarting. How do I go on with my life now that my mother, who is my absolute muse, her muse, the woman who generated everything that she was, um, how does she go on with her life and her work?
3: She's absolutely devastated by this loss. She decides to return to her roots, to the thing that connects so many women in her family. Stitching together pieces of fabric to make something new. Quilting. It went back generations in the family. Willie Posey actually learned it from her mother. And she and Faith had worked on a quilt together a year before her death. My understanding
1: is that her grandmother taught her Betsy. Uh, Betsy had everything. Betsy was rich. <laughs> Betsy was a dressmaker. She's a former slave.
3: And Betsy's own mom, so Faith's great-grandmother, taught Betsy how to quilt.
1: They all made clothes. They were dressmakers. They obviously sewed as slaves. And they both were about 100 when they died. So my grandmother knew them.
3: So now, Faith decides to bring quilting into her art in a different way. She makes a piece called Who's Afraid of Aunt Jemima. It's based on a minstrel show character that up until recently was used to sell pancake syrup. This elaborate quilt has a border made of scraps of colorful fabric, and she's painted figures directly onto the fabric. She's using the fabric as her canvas. It's a huge innovation and a huge departure from anything else that's happening at the art world at the time. And more than that, it's also when Faith begins to use text in her artwork. So the quilt has a story literally written into its borders. Faith wanted Michelle to help her write the text about Aunt Jemima.
1: And I said, no, mother, I cannot do that. And she said, well, you know, Aunt Jemima is our feminist hero. I said to her, she's not my feminist hero. I don't know what you're talking about.
3: (laughs) So Faith writes the story herself uh, without Michelle's help. She uses text on the quilt to reimagine Aunt Jemima as a successful entrepreneur and matriarch. This is the first Faith Ringgold story quilt. She will be world famous for this, but... She was scared of what she'd done. She had hit it. She
1: hit it. She was afraid to show it to anybody. And uh, Moira came and stayed with her. Moira is a close friend of Faith's. She said to Moira, you know, I feel guilty because under your bed, I'm hiding this work of art.
3: (laughs) I don't know
1: what it is or why it is, but I feel guilty about it. And Moira said, take it out. Let me see it. And it was who's afraid of Aunt Jemima. Moira loved it. With "Who's Afraid of Aunt Jemima?", here comes my grandmother's voice and all the elders in our family coming out of my mother's mouth in a way. I marvel at it now that that her grieving process produced so much work. It produced the story quilts. It produced the abstractions. It became my mother's new medium. Faith's story quilts continue to get more
3: personal. And in 1991, she tells one of her most ambitious stories in a series called The French Collection. The first quilt in that collection is the one I showed Kai earlier, the one that is inspired by Michelle and Faith's trip to Paris. And it's yet another turning point for her art. What she was doing is she was starting
1: her career all over again at 60. She'd already been an artist 30 years. It would be a midpoint. It could have been as far as she'd ever get. But the French collection is a
3: projection of where she plans to go with her career. And Faith does go on to great places. Her work has been exhibited at the Whitney, the Guggenheim, the Tate, the Museum of Modern Art added dye to its permanent collection. It hangs in the same room as a work by another great artist. You may have heard of him, Pablo Picasso. Her story quilt, Tara Beach, was adapted into a best-selling children's book. At 91, she's still making work. She's been inspired by the protests following George Floyd's murder. She has a lot more to say about racial injustice and the American people.
1: She has left me a wonderful, wonderful detailed roadmap of her thoughts and her passions. And it's for me to interpret the work and talk about it and try to help explain it or understand it. Whereas she, you know, she's just light years ahead of people in this regard.
0: was art historian michelle wallace talking with our producer rahima nasa about the life and career of faith ringgold if you missed the retrospective on faith ringgold at the new museum you can catch it this summer at san francisco's de young museum the show opens on july 16th the united states of anxiety is a production of wnyc studios keep up with us by following the show wherever you get your podcasts or at wnyc.org slash anxiety you can send us your thoughts on any and everything you hear on the show by emailing us at anxiety at WNYC.org. We do particularly love to get voice memos there. So just record them on your smartphone and email them to us. Again, that's anxiety at WNYC.org. Our team includes Emily Botin, Regina DeHir, Karen Frillman, Kusha Navadar, Rahima Nasa, and Katie Steele. Live engineering by Matthew Miranda. Jared Paul does our mixing and our sound design. Our theme was written by Hannes Brown and performed by the Outerboro Brass Band, and I am Kai Wright. Thanks for spending time with us, and I'll talk to you next week.